0: This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs.
1: Talk about a couple of different ideas about the relationship relationship between AI and childhood. And what I'm going to do first is talk about what I think is a really different way of conceptualizing what AI, particularly so with the recent developers, like the large language image models, how we should think about those, how we should think about them in relationship to humans and to children and to human intelligence. And then in the second part, what I'm going to do is talk about some of the things that children can do, the kinds of intelligence that children have, which you don't see in these other kinds of systems. And then at the very end, I'm just going to point to some ways that we might be able to develop artificial systems that would have some of the capacities that we see even in very young children. Um, okay. And you can read uh, more about this in a, in a more popular form in this APS presidential column, and then in uh, an academic form in this paper that's in press and that you can find on archive. All right, so let me start out by thinking about this reconceptualization of AI. So a very common way of thinking about artificial intelligence systems, including things like large language models, is as if they were individual agents, as if they were individual um, agents with a particular kind of intelligence, moving around the world, thinking, deciding, planning, etc. And it's interesting that even if linguistically people nowadays refer to an AI as opposed to referring to AI, so that's individual agents. And typically, either people think of them as being really incredibly, or both, really incredibly smart agents, genius agents, agents who are even smarter than we are, and also, and or also really evil agents like the Gollum. And I think it's interesting that even before we had machines, when people thought about what it would be like if you had an intelligent machine, they thought it was going to be evil. That goes back to the Gollum and the Greeks. Um, so this picture is we have these individual agents, they might be good, they might be bad, they might be uh, smarter than us, and we have to figure out what it is that we're going to do with them now that we've loosed them on the world. And a lot of the conversation is like this. Uh, now, as I'm going to say later, it's not impossible to think about an artificial uh, intelligence that was an agent. But I think that is not the right way of thinking about almost all of the models that we have, and especially things like the large models that have been so successful and influential recently. Instead, I think the way to think about these models is as what I've called cultural technologies. What's a cultural technology? Cultural technology is a technology that allows individual humans to take advantage of all the information, knowledge, skills, abilities that other humans have accumulated over millennia of cultural history. So you could argue that language is kind of like the early cultural technology. Language is the thing that humans have that lets us, learn from other humans. But over the course of human history, one of the really interesting things that's happened that's led to massive qualitative changes in how we function is the development of better and better, stronger and stronger, more powerful, new cultural technologies. So an obvious example is writing. Um, So writing allows you not only to learn from uh, the postmenopausal grandmothers, who, by the way, are the people who are really the agents of all this cultural work, Uh, not only from the postmenopausal grandmothers, I can talk about that a bit later on. That's what I did. That's true. Um, The postmenopausal grandmothers uh, who are in your village, once you've got writing, then you can learn from the grandmothers in very far distant places, far distant times in the past. We know that writing had a really major effect on human intelligence. Um, If you think about print, that's an even more dramatic example of something that enables you to Get information very quickly from many different kinds of places, and along with print, go institutions like libraries, indexes, ways that you can access that information, and of course, most recently, you have things like internet search and Wikipedia, which are using the digital digital technology to enable you to much more effectively, much more quickly, swiftly access all of this information from other people around you. Now. That's a really different picture than the agent picture. So it would be incoherent, as we used to say in philosophy, to ask, does the Berkeley Library know more than I do, right? Well, in some sense, of course, they'd have much more information than I do, but it's just silly. It's just an, a mistake to ask whether the library knows more than I do. The library's is uh, technology which enables me to get information from lots of other, uh, from lots of other people, lots of other agents. Um, Wikipedia, by the way, I think is a particularly interesting example of this recently. And this ability to have these kinds of cultural technologies arguably is in itself the thing that makes humans so intelligent. So there are lots of people in cognitive science who have argued um, for what's called the cultural niche. This is the idea that what makes us human is exactly this capacity to take information from, uh, from other people and use it to make progress further. So people sometimes talk about this as being like the cultural ratchet, so... A whole group of people go out of the environment. They learn all sorts of things. They pass that information on to the next generation. That next generation takes off from that information, uses it to learn yet more. And that process is the thing that has actually enabled cities and civilization and all the things for better or for worse that humans are capable of. Um, uh, so that's an idea about something very basic about human, uh, about human intelligence is that we rely on these cultural and it's interesting that if you look at the, I think that this is also helpful because when we're thinking about a lot of the pragmatic questions about what the social impact of AI is going to be, how we should deal with it, I think it's actually very helpful to think about these historical examples of other kinds of cultural technologies and their impact on us. Again, I think that's a much more helpful, insightful way of thinking about it than thinking about it as has the golem come to life and is it going to come and kill us all or, or are we all going to disappear and just have the super intelligence instead. Um, and it's interesting that if you look at conversation about these technologies, people always point out that they have good features and bad features. So famously, Socrates thought that writing was a really bad idea. I won't go into this quote, but I love this quote. And I think it's interesting that, especially like that last sentence about... Um, you know, they seem to talk to you as though they were intelligent, books do. But if you ask them anything, they just go on telling you the same thing forever. Which sounds so much like talking to ChatGPT, right? It looks as if it's intelligent, but then it just keeps producing the same nonsense over and over again, right? Um, So you can already see, and Socrates pointed out, that if we relied too much on writing, we would lose our capacity to memorize all of Homer, for example, uh, which is indeed something that very few people can do nowadays. And also, and interestingly, that writing would be a great source of misinformation. So Socrates pointed out, if something was written in a book, you couldn't interrogate it the same way that you could interrogate a person. And that would mean that you would tend to think that things that were written down were true, even then, even when, uh, even when they weren't. Um, and that, those issues are issues that, about how they're, built, they're going to affect us, and also about misinformation, of uh, the possibility of transmitting information that's really useful and accurate, but also transmitting information that isn't useful or accurate, that's an issue that comes up with all of these cultural technologies. Um, the example of print, I think, is a really interesting one. In the late 18th century, there were enormous technological changes, which meant that although print had been around since Gutenberg, suddenly everybody essentially could print. Anybody with a little bit of capital, you could set up a print shop and you could produce pamphlets. And this, ha- lots of people, his- historians have argued, that this had a transformative effect on society. And many of the things that we think of as the Enlightenment, for example, really depended on having this technology of printing available. So on one side of this picture, that's actually Benjamin Franklin, who famously was a printer's apprentice. And it was his capacity to print that arguably enabled things like the American Revolution to take place. If you read, I was recently reading um, this wonderful uh, biography of... uh, Samuel Adams and literally Adams was in the print shop the night of the Boston massacre, making up the Boston massacre. This thing happened. There were a bunch of protesters. There were a bunch of soldiers. Something happened. Adams went to the print shop. like 10 hours later and wrote up the story about what was going to be the Boston massacre and, and distributed, uh, distributed it. Um, um, on the other hand, even though we think about print as this way to uh, to uh, underpin things like uh, like the in, the Enlightenment uh, diffusion of knowledge, it also, like writing, had the capacity for misinformation from the very beginning. And I highly this is a, a by now a, an ancient classic book, Robert Dartner's book, *The Literary Underground of the Old Regime*. Another nice Berkeley-ish example of how humanities and science can speak to each other. And what Darwin actually did was go back and read not just, you know, Common Sense and Benjamin Franklin, but everything that those printing presses produced. And you will be amazed to hear that most of it was really terrible. Most of it was, a lot of it was softcore porn and a lot of it, well, the rest of it was libel. So um, the Let Them Eat Cake, for example, was actually a meme. It was actually a meme that was invented in the context of of print. Mary Antoinette never said it. Um, but it was obviously a meme that, like memes and misinformation nowadays, can have really strong, uh, and in this case, arguably very terrible effects. Uh, now, one of the things that I'll, I'll just go through this quickly, but I think it's interesting, is that you might say, well, okay, why is it if what's going on in these cultural technologies is that we're agglomerating information from lots of different sources, why do we so often think of them as if they're agents? So why don't we treat them as if they're agents? Why do we say ChatGPT said this? And it's almost impossible when you're talking about these systems not to say it said this, it did this, it could do this, it can't do this other thing. Um, And I think it's interesting that if you look at past cultural technologies, very often the form of information that a cultural technology uses is to have a fictional agent. So it's hard to tell people very general things about all the information that other people have accumulated, often it's much more effective to have a made-up agent who's actually illustrating the information that you want to tell. And it's interesting that if you look even back in the place to sing, look at hunter-gatherer communities, one of the really important things that happens is, especially in the evening, people sit around and the postmenopausal grandmothers, who are always the agents that change, um, talk to the little kids and some of the adults as well about What are the myths? What are the stories? What are the things that are important in our culture? What are the things that you need to know? What are the big things that you need to know? And the way that you do that is through telling stories. The way you do it is by having a fictional agent who can uh, exemplify the things that you think are really uh, culturally important. So that's actually something that we have quite characteristically done. Um, uh, Another example is, uh, interestingly, uh, an anthropologist of religion just has a an interesting paper about this in the context of LLOs. Um, another example, if you think about gods, gods sort of serve the same function. So even though gods don't actually exist, they are ways of passing on information about what you think is important in the context of culture. So don't say that I said that large language models were gods, or maybe you could say they're only gods that don't exist, right? Um, they're that kind of god, A god that, the god that doesn't exist. Um, and last thing that I love as the daughter of a um, as that I love as the daughter of an English professor, um, is that in fact that eighteenth century print revolution that I talked about also came with this new literary form, which was a novel. <laughs> and it turns out that the very first novels, like I said, this is a Samuel Richardson's Pamela, even though Pamela was a made up person, um, she became incredibly popular. People would line up in the streets to find out the next installment of what had happened to her. And Senator Richardson was a printer. The printing and these new fictional characters in novels who could tell you something about what's going on around you uh, happened in, in concert. So what I want to argue is that that's the way that we should be thinking about um, we should be thinking about these large locks. They're different. They're not. It's not like they're just the same as print. Each one of these new cultural technologies has different characteristics, different kinds of powers. I think they're arguably more powerful than print, because they can generalize and they can, they can agglomerate enormous, giant amounts of information, all the information that's there on the Internet. Um, but I think the structure of how they work is the same. And I think in that context, again, we can get some important historical, we can get some hi- important historical insight by thinking about how we manage the previous cultural technologies. So every time a cultural technology develops, you're faced with these problems about things like misinformation. And typically what's happened is that various kinds of norms, rules, regulations, laws, principles develop in parallel that actually enable you to get the benefit rather than the cost of a new cultural technology. So if you think about things like, Um, just norms of truth that you should tell the truth instead of lying, or uh, things like editors, journalism schools, fact checkers. The developments of print in the 18th century came with these new things called newspapers and editors, which hadn't existed before. So instead of just looking at all the pamphlets, you could say, okay, this printed paper is the New York Times, and therefore I'm going to give it a kind of authority that I wouldn't give to just a random pamphlet that was... That was on the, um, on the street. Um, and I think it's, that's the thing that we have to do with AI. So we can't just sort of say, yeah, it'll be fine. These aren't like evil golems, so everything's OK. What we need to do is to have the same kind of uh, uh, mechanisms that we have for other kinds of cultural technologies. Um, OK, so that's the first part of the talk, making this argument about uh, AIs as these kind of cultural technologies that are accumulating lots and lots and lots of information, all day. Internet. Why isn't that enough? Why isn't that enough to be intelligent? If, as I've argued, so much of human intelligence comes from this capacity to um, learn from other people, to extract information from other people, why is it that a system that can do that really well and much better than any individual human can, why wouldn't that be? And to answer that question, I want to turn from thinking about um, AI systems as technologies to thinking about um, children. Why children in particular? Well, famously in the Turing, um, the famous Turing paper where he talks about the Turing test. There's this wonderful segue that nobody ever notices or didn't notice until recently, which is he starts out saying, "Okay, if you want to know if a system is intelligent, Read what you do, you do the imitation test." But then he suddenly shifts and said, "You know, maybe that's not the right test. If we really wanted to know whether our system is intelligent," we'd have to know whether it could learn from its experience the way that a human child, for example, learns. And he very explicitly says, instead of producing a program that can simulate the adult, why not try to simulate the child? And in a sense, what something like large models are doing is accumulating all the information from all those adult minds that are out there, right? That's that's the great power of those systems. But what children, although children do do that, children do something rather different. What children do is actually go out into the world and learn about the world independently of all the information that they're getting from other people. Uh, and-, and over the past uh, several years, more and more people within uh, AI are trying to use children who are the best learners that we go up as a model for how we could design AI systems that could learn in this way as well. Uh, the title of the paper that I mentioned is Transmission Versus Truth. And what large models and uh, the typical kind of AI, AI models that are trained on large amounts of data can do is transmit information very well. What they're not good at doing is going out into the world and finding the truth, which is the thing that kids are very good at doing. So from that perspective, for example, when people talk about the problem of, um, of something like ChatGPT hallucinating, uh, which is something that everyone around Seen, that's not, it's not that they're hallucinating, it's that they just don't care. There's nothing in their objective function that makes a difference for truth and falsity. So if you just imagine, you know, what, as Socrates said, books can have, the books in the library don't tell you whether what they're, what's in them is true or not. They're just there to transmit information. Um, um, but as we'll see, kids care tremendously about what's true. And arguably, kids are. That's their greatest motivation is going out in the world and trying to figure out how the world works. Um, and we know a bit from developmental cognitive science about how they do that. Um, and in this DARPA machine common sense pro- program that we've had at Berkeley with great AI people like uh, Jitendra Malik, we've heard in this, in this series before, uh, Alexei Efros, um, we figured that... I, I discovered that working with DARPA, the most important thing is to get good acronyms. Um, so... Uh, then you've got, you know, you've got DARPA worked out. So our acronym for what we're doing is MESS, which is appropriate for children, um, which is to try to design these model building exploratory social learning systems. So how do children learn so much, um, and how do they learn the truth about the world? They, first of all, don't just get statistics, although we have a lot of evidence that children are amazingly good at statistical inference, much better than we ever would have thought before. But they don't just aggregate statistics the way that something like a large language model does, instead they actually pull out abstract causal models, intuitive theories from that statistical evidence. Uh, My first book is called The Scientist in the Crib and I and lots of other cognitive scientists have used this metaphor. They're not just looking at statistics and making predictions, they're pulling out causal structure and then using that causal structure to understand how the world works. And that's one of the most important ways that humans in science, but also in everyday life, figure out the truth about the world. The other thing that makes what children are doing very different from what typical AI systems and particularly large models do is that they're active learners. They actually go out into the world and actively try to get the kind of data that will be relevant to the problems that they're trying to solve. And there's more and more evidence, I'll give you some example of this in a bit, that they're super sophisticated in doing this. When scientists do this, of course, we call it having an experimental research program. And when two-year-olds do it, we call it getting into everything. But it turns out that if you actually study the getting into everything, um, that what's going on is something that's much more like a scientific research program than you might imagine. So children aren't just passively absorbing data from the program around them, for example. They're actually actively going out and trying to make discoveries, find out about things that are going on. Uh, in the external world, not just, say, in the internet. Um, And they do also have these capacities for social learning, as I mentioned before, for extracting information from the other people around them. Um, And there's some lovely studies of this. Sometimes what they do is just sort of mindlessly try to agglomerate that information. But a lot of times what happens is that they're balancing that, as we'll see in a minute, against this drive for the truth. So as opposed to just accepting what other people tell them, they try to balance that against other kinds of information they've got, including the information they've got through their own experimentation and exploratory, uh, exploratory play. Um, okay, let let's say a bit about uh, how, does that, how does that picture of what children are doing, how does that interact with this really remarkable set of studies we've had over the last year or so about how powerful these large models are what can large models tell us about how children are learning and what can children tell us about how large models work? Well, I think one way of thinking about it is that we can figure out what kinds of information are available through transmission, through just looking at the information that other people give you and what kinds of information do you need to discover for yourself. Um, And I think syntax is a really good example where typically people in linguistics, for example, have thought, you can't get to syntax just by looking at the statistics of linguistic input, and it turns out that actually, no, you can. This is something that these systems genuinely are incredibly uh, incredibly good at, and it looks as if there's enough information in the data to extract the kind of structure that you need to be able to produce grammatical sentences, which is not something that I think we would have known, uh, we would have known before. Um, Another thing to say, which makes this problem a little more difficult in some ways from the cognitive science perspective, the old fashioned as in like last year or three months ago um, or yesterday, um, vanilla um, large language models, the ones that just work by predicting what the next word or token is going to be are more useful than some of these more recent ones. So what's happened more recently is that rather than just extracting the statistics of the information, you've added things like reinforcement learning from human feedback, which means that now we have humans. And I highly recommend a piece in New York Magazine recently that was describing this, you know, giant factories worth of people in places like Nigeria and Kenya who are just sitting there and looking at the output of of these systems and saying, yeah, that's good or that's not good, right? Um, that's reinforcement learning through human feedback. Um, and we have things like prompt engineering and fine tuning that are also designed to do this. Now, what that means is it becomes very hard to figure out what's actually going on under the hood in these systems. Whereas if you just have a kind of classic LLN, you can say, okay, this is information that's there in the, in the language, or this is information that's there in Images, the large image model. Once you get reinforcement learning from human feedback, it's much harder to know what exactly is the information that this system is, uh, is encoding? Um, but from the conceptual perspective, from this perspective of is, is it an agent or a cultural technology, it's still true that what something like RLHF is doing is not enabling a system to go out and find out about the truth. All it's doing is giving it yet another way of getting information from other people, a somewhat less obvious and transparent way than the kind of classic uh, LLM uh, systems are. Uh, Um, and another thing that they, that large models can teach us, which I think is really interesting and sort of under, has been further studied, under is what kinds of cognitive capacities are facilitated by a new technology. So what sort of things can we do, uh, when we have print or when we have writing that we couldn't do before? And you can probably already think about the fact that we can remember things and we can set things down and go back to them. There's all sorts of cognitive capacities we have from those technologies. And a really interesting empirical question is, uh, mathematics is another nice example, where we couldn't have math until we had our notation system that would let us write down equations. Um, So I think a really interesting question is, are there uh, cognitive capacities that will be enabled by these new cultural technologies that would be different from the cognitive capacities? that were available to us in the past. But again, that's a very different way of structuring the problem than saying, are they smarter than us or are they not smarter than us? Do they, whoever they are, have those cognitive capacities. Okay, but I also think that children in developmental cognitive science can teach us a lot of things about how to think about, uh, about large language models and understand them. And one of the first things that I think is really important, I will jump up and down about this, is that there's no such thing as general intelligence. There's little bits of stuff about IQ in, in the psychometric literature, but from a cognitive science perspective, there just isn't anything that's general intelligence, artificial or natural. So the whole sort of there's, there's this kind of a, uh, intuitive theory of intelligence, which is it's like a fluid or it's like a, you know a force that's out there, and you have the force of intelligence, and you don't have the you don't have the force of intelligence. Um, you're one of those guys, guys being the relevant category here, who's got a whole lot of the force or else you're a guy who doesn't have so much of the force. Um, and that's just not the way that cognitive science, that cognitive scientists think about intelligence. Instead, what you've got are a whole path, a whole lot of different cognitive capacities, and very characteristically, they're in tension with one another. So being really good at exploration, for instance, might can make you worse at exploitation and vice versa, being really good at Focused attention makes you worse at extracting general information. Um, so what we need to do is to actually work out in detail what are the kinds of underlying uh, processes that a particular system, artificially natural, is using in a particular context. i try to say something about that, rather than saying, do they have sparks of intelligence or do they not have sparks of intelligence? Um, and from a methodological point of view as well, um, children uh, can tell us something about how to understand the cognitive capacities of uh, an alien system. I highly recommend this paper by Mike Frank. Um, and when one of the great things about being a developmental cognitive scientist is we can't just assume things about the cognitive capacities of the very intelligent creatures that we're studying. We actually have to go out and do very systematic kinds of experimentation to try and figure that out. And I think, importantly, we have to do something that I think of as um, anti tuning. So, when we're doing development, uh, when we're doing a developmental experiment, what we have to do is make sure that we don't have any prompts for the children. Because what we want to do is figure out what's the underlying cognitive capacities, not are the children capable of using our prompts to give us the answer that we want them to, to give us. So, it's kind of the opposite of what happens in a lot of uh, LLMs. We really want to understand cognitive capacities. We need to have control conditions, we need to do these very careful experiments. And I think development can provide a lot of uh, examples of how to do this. Um, and if we want to say, is this system intelligent or can the system do acts, can the system do theory of mind, for example, to take one that is, a, uh, is dear to my heart, we need to actually go out and, like developmental psychologists did, spend 20 years doing experiments to figure out whether and what children understand about the mind my life would have been much easier if I could have sat down with a three year old in 1986 and, uh, and talked to them for a couple of days and then decided whether they had their minds um, or not. Okay. Uh, so, so far I've been talking about some of these capacities that children have. And I mentioned before that these cognitive capacities for faithful cultural transmission are in tension with uh, cognitive capacities that enable new discoveries about these. Things like exploration or experimentation or uh, causal discovery or induction. Uh, and what we've been doing is using uh, studies of children and then comparing them to studies of artificial systems um, to to work out how is it that that kind of innovation works. What is it that children are doing that enables them to innovate, that enables them to learn new things about the world? Um, and we know that children are learning these intuitive causal models and they seem to do this through exploration and the research program that we've had is to put children and agents in the same online environments and that way we can same sort of un, unrestricted online environments let the children and the agents explore freely in those environments and then see what kinds of discoveries can the children or the agents make about how those uh, about how those environments work Uh, And one of the first examples of this, this is an experiment with uh, a bunch of people here uh, in computer science. What we were trying to do was see if children could figure out causal structure. As I mentioned, causal structure is really important. And in our developmental work for a long time, we've used this little box, the blicket detector. And the blicket detector is a little box that lights up and plays music when you put some things on it and not others. And with this very simple device, you can actually ask quite sophisticated questions about the causal structure of this device. How does it work? Which ones are blickets? What will happen? Can you make the device uh, go? So what we've done in the past is to show children different patterns of evidence about how the system works, again, as if they were little scientists, and then we've asked them to draw the right causal conclusions about how the system works. Um, in this experiment, because we now had the online experiment, the online environment, we did something different. What we did was to actually let the children explore the COVID, he invented a virtual blink detector. So now you can put things on the machine in various combinations and permutations. And sometimes the machine lights up and sometimes it doesn't. And here's a child actually playing. This is a four-year-old. And perhaps the most striking thing about these experiments is that current day four-year-olds are absolutely absolutely perfectly happy to figure out and explore in this virtual online uh, environment. I'm not sure that would have been true 20 years ago when we first invented the blinker detector. And then, even more remarkably, what we discovered, and I won't go into all the details of this experiment, what we discovered was that the children were very good at doing exactly the right things to figure out how uh, how the system worked. So most of the children, just in the space of about 20 trials, 20 things that they did, 20 choices about what to put on and what not to put on, figured out, what the the underlying causal structure was. Um, So they were really good at doing this. Uh, They figured out which ones were blickets. They figured out what they had to do to make the machine go. And they were much better at this than any of the large language models that were tested. Again, maybe you could do a bunch of prompt engineering to persuade the model to be able to solve this particular task, but just based on their general knowledge, they did incredibly badly. They were not good. And you can kind of see why, right? Um, even though they gave us back references to our blicket detector papers as a way of, uh, of answering what was going on in this task, of course, this was a new machine that didn't work like any of the machines that we had in our previous blicket detector papers. So it could tell you, okay, here's this Gopnik blicket detector. Here's how it works from reading the papers. What it couldn't do was do a bunch of experiments and use it to find out that this detector works really differently from any detector that you've uh, seen before. Um, uh, and in a new uh, series of experiments that we're doing that's also in that prospectus paper, we've been doing a similar uh, a similar kind of project um, with tool use. So in this project, what we wanted to do was try and look at another way that you could use causal information to try to uh, understand novel possibilities in the world. Um, and this involved a task that, Involve innovating uh, uh, tool innovation, which again is one of those things that's incredibly powerful, important human capacity. Uh, And we were interested in this from the perspective of development as well as from AI. We wanted to know if children would be able to do that, just as we were when we were looking at the children on the blanket detector. Um, uh, So what we did was to give children examples where there was uh, two objects that were highly associated with one another. So, for example, the scotch tape is highly associated with the scissors, much more associated with the scissors than with the band-aids. Um, and if you ask, you could ask people what goes with the scotch tape. Not the scissors. Yes, that's what children. do. Um, um, but you then present a particular causal problem. Here's an example like tearing up paper. And then you can ask which would be the right thing to solve this problem. Would you be better off solving this problem with scissors? Or would you be better off solving this problem with a mandate, even though you haven't already associated the mandate with uh, scissors? And again, I'm sure that with RLHF and prompt engineering, you could get uh, systems to do this. But when we first tested this with GPT-3, which was just just looking at the associations in the language, what you could see was that the children were much better at it than GPT-3, and GPT-3 was actually not any better than chance. And again, if you think about it, right, if you're just looking at associations in language, scissors and scotch tape are going to be much more closely associated. If you want to know what word should you produce next after you've heard scotch tape, scissors is a much likelier outcome than band-aids. But if you're actually trying to figure out the causal properties of band-aids and scissors and paper, then you're going to have to think about that information in a in a, uh, in a different way. Uh, and in the most recent experiment that we've done, we had 47 different scenarios, each with a different set of objects. Um, uh, and within each of these sets, we have a reference object, like a tape, and there's a superficially related object, or a functional object that's not superficially related, or a totally unrelated object. And then uh, people have to rate both adults and children and uh, LLMs have to rate from zero to five how useful each of these objects will be in trying to solve this task. So I ripped up a paper. I have to decide what would be most useful, glue, which is an obvious sticky thing, um, a bandage, scissors, or cotton balls. Uh, and what we discovered was that when we simply asked the association a question, so we said, which goes with which? Does the scissors? Does the scissors go more with the scotch tape, or do the cotton balls or the band aids go with the scotch tape? Uh, the models were as good as people, or at least some of the mod- many of the models were as good as people, both children and adults. They seemed to be able to pick out these associations from the data. Um, but when it came to generating the novel functional uh, 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 capacities, even GPT four, which has all this extra RLHF was not as good as children or adults at solving these tasks. It was interesting that children, uh, even four-year-olds, were actually quite good at solving uh, these tasks, although not quite as good as adults. Okay. Okay, so, so far what I've been suggesting is uh, the kind of capacities that you get, especially from large models, involve this kind of transmission of information rather than exploration and truth. Um, that's been a kind of critical, this has been a critical enterprise, and we can give lots of other examples, but how about the positive part of the, uh, of the project? The positive part of the project is, are there other kinds of techniques that we could use in artificial intelligence or ways that we could design new artificial intelligences that would solve some of these problems that the way, in the way that children do, and would therefore, we hope, have some of the capacities that children have. Um, and I'm just going to just briefly gesture two projects that we're doing right now in Bear, And both of them, uh, in fact, all the projects we're doing now use this methodology that I think is very exciting of having online environments where both humans and children and agents get to freely explore those environments rather than dictating here's what the solutions are or here's what the choices are or, providing a supervised environment. So we're trying to set up unsupervised, environments that can be explored by either agents or children. And let me just mention two techniques we're trying to use to try to get the agents to solve these problems in a way that's more like children. Uh, One is with uh, right here, what we're trying to do is to get intrinsically motivated reinforcement learning. So classic reinforcement learning uh, involves getting a particular kind of reward, and that turns out to be Really powerful, you can use those kinds of systems to do things like learn how to play uh, learn how to play, go. But what children are doing when they're exploring is not being uh, it's also doing things that actually lead them to have less reward in any kind of straightforward way, and we've done a bunch of empirical studies that have shown this. what children do is kind of play they go around, they try things, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. if they get too good at doing something, they get bored or they try something else. Their motivation seems to be this kind of intrinsic motivation. They're doing things for the sake of learning rather than doing things for the sake of being rewarded in the long run. And what we've been doing is trying to take formal ideas like information gain, one that I'm very excited about is empowerment, and turn those into rewards. So make the reward be the fact that you're more competent than you were before, or make the reward be the fact that you know something that you didn't know before. it's a way of trying to put things like curiosity and exploration into artificial systems. So that's one, uh, that's one line of research. That's one set of techniques that we've been doing. Um, we've also been doing this in the context of play, for example. So we have recordings of children playing in these online environments, and then we can use their play to try to figure out what uh, an agent could do in that environment that would enable them to master the environment. Um, and the second thing that we've been doing is taking these ideas about, particularly emphasizing these ideas about uh, causality. This is work with Roger Key at, uh, at DeepMind and also with Blake Richards at NeLA, We've been looking at causal inference um, and trying to see if we could get a kind of automated curriculum, um, uh, if we could design uh, a system that could have what's called an automated curriculum. What does that mean? What that means is another thing that children are extremely good at doing is figuring out what they need to do to be able to learn something that in the long run is going to enable them to learn something else. So instead, the way that these experiments have gone is we are using the, the PropGen environment, which is kind of a video game environment. We start out by showing a really hard level that the kids can't do. And then we say, could you decide how to play a game that will help you to be able to play this other game that you'll eventually be rewarded from. And again, if you know children, children are actually turned out to be quite good at saying, okay, first I have to do the simpler thing. And doing the simpler thing is going to give me the skills that I'll need to be able to do the more complicated thing. And the same thing happens with agents. So if you give agents these high dimensional, really difficult tasks, it takes them forever to be able to solve it. But if you can could get them to have a curriculum where they'd say, I can't solve this task yet. Let me try getting skills in a simpler context and then applying them to the task. That would be another example of something that that children are doing that agents, uh, that uh, should enable agents. And again, uh, those are some of the kinds of things that we're seeing at the moment. So, uh, we'll go with at the moment. Um, So overarching, uh, overarching, the overarching point, I don't want to say, and I don't think it's true that artificial systems are never going to be able to do the kinds of things that humans are doing or that human children are doing. But I think the very progress that we've made gives us a sense of the, the dimensions, the landscape of the kinds of things that are going to turn out to be much easier to do or at least the kinds of things that we're going to be able to do with sufficient data and sufficient compute and the kinds of things that are still going to be very challenging even with very large amounts of data and large amounts of compute the kinds of things that we're going to need other kinds of capacities to solve. And in particular, the kinds of things that are going to demand these truth seeking capacities, that are going to demand going out into the real world, getting new data, changing, modifying what you do. And those are exactly the kinds of things that the incredibly brilliant but strange little agents all around us that we don't pay much attention to um, are doing every day. And the interesting challenge would be to try and figure out what computations are those brains in those beautiful little fuzzy heads doing that we could actually use in an artificial system? So, let me... Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, the empowerment idea is a technical idea in, in, on, in reinforcement learning that I think is very very interesting. The idea is that you get rewarded for doing something that has an outcome. So the idea is it doesn't really matter what the outcome is or whether it's going to be positive or even whether it's going to be negative. What you're getting rewarded for is do something that has an effect on the world. And I think there's a lot of evidence. We've shown this in things that we've done that children, for children, and again, anyone who has a two-year-old, like mine. I now, by the way, have five grandchildren, um, including including a somewhat terrible two-year-old. Um, and anyway, as a two-year-old, will recognize that just making things happen is the thing that makes them more excited that, uh, than anything else. And I think that's interesting because from the perspective of causal inference, when we say you're going out into the world and discovering a causal structure, what you're doing is discovering the things that you can intervene on to bring about outcomes. So being very kind of interested in doing that, like our whole engineering program, right? That's what an engineering school is all about, is about how can you make things. And I think it's, we just don't know exactly how and when children are doing that or whether some children are doing it or others. Here's an idea that I think might also be relevant in AI. We're just starting to test this, which is that the reason why children can do that kind of empowered exploration is because they know that they have uh, caregivers. So again, the postmenopausal grandmothers are the key to all of this. If you know that grandma is there and you're going to be taken care of, and nothing really terrible is going to happen to you, then you can go out and you can try things, even if you think the outcomes might actually be bad outcomes. But you know that you are in, you're in, uh, in control and in charge. So I think the, the human um, the human strategy is we have these incredibly exploratory children, and then we have these very nurturing uh, adults, and you need both sides of that to solve those uh, to solve. Hi, um such an interesting talk. I'm I'm curious on the element of how children's learn through play. I'm thinking of imaginative play or transformative right. play where they're constantly reinventing the rules. Right. And how that could be taught or related to uh these like, large systems or language models. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great I- example and we we have a whole project uh that's called computational counterplay. So one of the things we're looking at is this kind of play where we're just kind of mastering new ideas, but we've looked at things like pretend play. And pretend play, again, has these very interesting connections to um, causal inference, because what we've discovered is that when children are pretending, what they're doing is generating counterfactual. And generating counterfactuals is one of the things that you can do if you have a causal theory, but it's one of the things that's much harder for something like a, an LLM to do. So generating a counterfactual and saying something... Knew that isn't actually something that you've already observed in the world before. If the world were different, what would happen, right? And that's something that's very hard to do if all you've got is data from what has actually already happened in the world. It's something that you do all the time when you're doing pretend play. Um, And it's a really interesting question about when you, we've studied this, when you look at children's pretend play, it's crazy, right? It's not true, but it kind of makes sense. It's not random. It's not just, it's not just that they say anything, They say things that wouldn't make sense if you were in that other alternative environment, and that's one of the cues to human intelligence. So an interesting question would you thought would be if you could get a system that could generate counterfactuals that could pretend in a systematic way, you might predict that, as with the children, that would enable you to generate counterfactuals in a real-life situation where you need to use counterfactuals to solve the problem. Sir?
0: So this is fascinating as a parent of three sons, yeah. I think a lot, but they were two years old, 20 years ago. So, <laughs> but yeah, I was curious, I is, is this the right, right wait for the grandchildren? Um, is there equivalence of neurodivergence in this kind of thinking of, uh, thinking of cognitive systems?
1: Right. Uh, well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by neurodivergence, but one thing that I think is really interesting and I, uh, had a slide and there were too many slides, but if you think about this kind of trade-off idea, the kind of brain that you need to be able to do this kind of wide-ranging exploration is quite different from the kind of brain that you need to be able to, say, act effectively in the world. And if you actually look at the neuroscience of development, what you see is that young kids up to about five have brains that are functioning in very different ways from adults. And you actually sort of see this curve where up to about five, you get many new synapses being formed. And then after five, you start this pruning process where, so the ones that are there get to be stronger, but the ones that aren't there uh, disappear. So you have this young brain that's very flexible, very plastic, very good at learning, not very good at putting on its jacket and getting to preschool in the morning. And then you have this old brain that's very good at organizing, uh, you know, a symposium series, not very good at learning a new language, for example. Um, And we can see that even in the, even in your size about, uh, about uh, the differences between children and adults. So you have things that are, one of my slogans is things that are bugs from the exploit perspective or features from the explore perspective and vice versa. So a lot of things that children do that have traditionally been seen as being signs of lack of intelligence, like they're kind of random and noisy all, and all over the place, actually are signs of intelligence from the explorer perspective. And a lot of things that they're bad at doing, like focusing on one thing at a time and doing long-term planning, are things that are great from the perspective of actually, of the exploit perspective, getting things done, not so good for at least.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for this uh, very interesting uh, presentation. Uh, My question is this, if you look at, if we look at today's AI as a baby Mm -hmm. and compare that with a small uh, child, um, my question is this, the computation power between machine and human, there's a big gap. And because of the gap, could artificial intelligence develop and find a different way a path to develop intelligence compared to human
1: yeah i mean i think again what you mean by intelligence is solving particular kinds of problems that's what you, that's what you mean so the question is what kind of problem is it that you're trying to solve and what kinds of capacities do you need and of course as people have pointed out if you want to do something like add very large amounts of number artificial intelligence already is you know surpassing us by many 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 orders of magnitude there's no question your definition of intelligence, as it might have been in the olden days, was doing things like, or doing things like playing chess. Um, and it's clear that these systems, you can design systems that are, very good at, that are extremely good at doing this. If you're, if you're interested in some of the things that are characteristically things that children, for instance, are solving, like being in a very high-dimensional space in the real world and figuring out what the structure of that space is in a very relatively short time with relatively few data samples, that's something that these systems are not particularly good at, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that simply adding more compute power is going to be the thing that will help uh, um, enable them to, to solve those problems. In fact, I think there's reason to believe that it's probably not going to have. Um, what you need to do is have systems that now have, as it were, an objective function, which is about going out into the real world and, uh, and solving, uh, solving problems. Help them to
0: you said something early on that really caught my attention that uh, these generative models are not hallucinating. They just don't care.
1: Right. And that stu- uh, kids care about truth and how the world works. So kind of my question is, how do we make it care about truth? Is this a collaborative tool that's going to eventually be a two-way street rather than us fine-tuning? Is the AI going to ask us, do I have this right? How could I improve my... Because kids ask a lot of questions. Yeah, they, they do. In, in fact, there's a... Beautiful study that I like, which showed that uh, uh, your average four-year-old asks um, 20 questions a minute, and I I put that in my I put that in my book. And there was a lot of mansplaining about, no, you must have got that wrong. That couldn't be true. But that's actually what the statistics that's actually what the statistics look like. So what you'd want now, I I think the important point is you could imagine, and we might we're going to try and design systems that could do things like ask questions or get data from the world. LLMs just don't do that. That's not the, what hair training is, is ever going to be designed to do, right? I mean, the whole point about LLMs is the things they do is they predict what the next token is going to be, and they respond to reinforcement learning from human feedback. They respond to you saying to them, yeah, okay, that's good or that's not good. In a sense, that's like uh, uh, answering a question. What they don't do is say, uh, uh, why is there a clock way up on top of the campanile, which is the kind of thing that Uh, the kind of thing that children will do, let alone say, this is a a nice real example, Um, the little boy was walking and said, why is the clock way up there? And then said, they must have put it up there so the children wouldn't break it. Um, (laughs) So there's a beautiful example of a really good question and a really good answer, but not an answer that you would have ever gotten from either looking at the statistics of what's out there in in text or from asking someone to give you a give you uh, human feedback about whether that was a good answer in fact it's funny like what would you do if if a if a system said oh it must have done it because of that would you say no that's the wrong answer or would you say yes that's the right answer and it's exactly that space of the things that are not the right answer but are uh, intelligent that children are incredibly good at and that i don't think at least as currently constituted things like large models are, are going to be able to do yeah, no, I mean, I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. So, for problems like chess, where there's a very clearly defined objective, um, then, uh, then you can use some of these things like deep learning, uh, deep reinforcement learning, very effectively to get to that objective. An example that I like to give is what they would not be good at doing was playing Addy chess. So, Addy chess is Atticus, who's my, one of my grandchildren. And his big brother, of course, plays real chess. But what Addy does is take the chessboard. And then he'll take the pieces, and he'll put them in the wastebasket, and then he takes them out of the wastebasket, and he puts them back, and then he puts the black pieces and the white pieces in different kinds of orders, and then he gets bored with that, and then he stacks them. And Addy is really playing chess, right? Addy chess is, Addy chess is really what, the, 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 what the, um, the human game is about. Of course, he also drives his big brother completely insane. Um, uh, and that's what you mean, that's the kind of thing that you would mean if you were, if you were playing chess, and that's the sort of thing that is not going to be something that you'll have, even though it's really amazing that you can actually manage to make the right, uh, you can man- manage to make the right moves in chess as the result of something like deep reinforcement learning. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting because you also almost wonder, like, what was the point of chess in the first place? Um, probably if you could always get the right, it, w- it wouldn't be a good game to play, there's there's other kinds of intrinsic motivations in terms of being empowered, getting to be better at solving the, solving the gang, but it's kind of not the same gang anymore.
0: Really wonderful talk, especially, I think, grounding us in some historical perspectives is really useful um, in terms of Socrates, in terms of postmenopausal grandmothers. Uh, it's all very, very useful, um, particularly because I think a lot of the narratives that we're telling are kind of monotonous, unimaginative, and completely wrong. So... Much appreciated perspective in the beginning. Um, My question is around the relationship between the very kind of active, exploratory hypothesis-generating behavior that you've been describing and some more kind of passive learning systems. Um, There's years where kids just kind of like, you know, their physiological systems kind of stabilize. Their uh, acuity develops. Uh, There are a lot of learning systems that are not necessarily, question mark, um, actively yeah. generating and evaluating hypotheses, but I'm curious how you might think of the relationship between these more, what might be thought of as passive learning systems and these active learning systems.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I think syntax is a really lovely example of this because one of the things that we um, one of the things that we learned in development is that children babies like seven-month-olds are very good at predicting the next token in a sequence from a token, from a series, even when there's no content, even when there's no semantics. Seven-month-olds, right? Um, they're incredibly good at just picking out statistical patterns um, from data, and there's a whole field of developmental psychology about this, even when they're not actively exploring, even when they're not actively trying to solve problems. And for years, what, what linguists were saying was, yeah, I know. Well, seven-month-olds are really good at doing that. Who knows why seven-month-olds are so good at doing that? It could not really have anything to do with their, their learning language. And I think now what you'd say is, ah, uh-huh, yeah, you know, want to know why those seven-month-olds are so good at doing this? This is how they, this is how they, uh, they do syntax. Um, uh, so I think it is definitely true that, ki- that kids are extracting enormous amounts of statistical information in this kind of passive way. But then the interesting thing is that they're putting it to use and again, I think the um, example of thinking of a child as a scientist is a very helpful one. We use statistics, and we couldn't do a lot of our science unless we had the capacity to take a whole bunch of data and pick out what the statistical generalizations in the data is. That's an incredibly useful thing to do, but it's just the first step in enabling us. And sometimes it's not just the first step. Sometimes you might just, as, as in, I, you know, I think a lot of medicine, for example, works that way, where they have no idea about causal mechanisms. You just say, okay, this is more likely to produce a good res- result of something else. But most of the time, you want to extract underlying causal mechanisms from that. But I do think both those, it's, I think it's fascinating and interesting that both those things are, are present in kids. Uh, the important point is it's not just that the kids have the passive uh, capacities. They're, they're interacting. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV,